welcome aboard, ladies and gentlemen, and I do mean welcome aboard because today we're doing a very special ocean-themed episode of Horrible History with Asher Brooks. We'll be dealing with sharks, we'll be dealing with shipwrecks, we're dealing with all sorts of the nasty things that live beneath the waves. So just a quick content warning, if you suffer from thalassophobia, which is the fear of oceans, suffer from galeophobia, which is the fear of sharks, if you just don't want to imagine drowning in a shipwreck over the course of like four days... I would go ahead and turn it off. This episode is going to be full brutal. Um, joining me for this wet and awful time is going to be Will <laughs> Trudell. Will, you say hello? Hello, hello. Ah, perfect, perfect. Um, so we're going to get right into it because, honestly, I'm very excited to talk about this, but by the end, I will not be excited. I will be sad. <laughs> you will be sad and traumatized. I will be sad and traumatized, Yes. Um, no, so first episode, first kind of the uh, topic we're going to talk about is the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. Now, uh, do you have you ever heard of that particular ship? Do you know much about I, World War II? I do know a decent bit about World War II. I mm -hmm. do know of the USS Indianapolis. I don't know all the details, but I do know that it was horrific and tragic, <laughs> and a lot of people died, and it is the largest shark attack in recorded history. It absolutely is. Absolutely is. Um, I actually made a little random number generator that we're going to use at the end uh, to determine what our fate would be, um, but we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. <laughs> um, but, uh, <clears throat> no, so the U.S. Indianapolis played a lot of different roles during World War II, um, so you're aware of Little Boy, the atomic bomb that was dropped yes. on Hiroshima. So the Indianapolis was actually sent on a top-secret mission, so... In, it was in dry dock in San Francisco because a kamikaze fighter had dropped a bomb all the way through the Indianapolis. It had bust through the top deck, the mess hall, the fuel tanks, and then out the bottom of the ship, and then, then exploded um, and had dealt devastating damage to the Indianapolis. However, the Indianapolis had a bunch of bulkheads that were able to be sealed off, so even though there's this huge hole blown into the Indianapolis, um, it seals off its bulkheads and gets sent all the way back to like San Francisco, to be dry docked and repaired. Um, so the Indianapolis is a Portland-class heavy cruiser. It was launched in 1931. Um, it has a crew of just under 1,200 men. So we are going to say 1,200 because there are some passengers on board. But keep in mind that number is a little bit lower, maybe about five men lower usually. Okay. Um, but because it's in dry dock, it gets selected for this special mission. So the atomic bomb needs to be assembled that's going to be dropped on Hiroshima and they don't want to transport it by air because the scientists at Los Alamos personally have never tested this device it's going to be tested basically the same day that it's going to leave um, so they don't want to put it into an airplane because if the airplane crashes as it takes off from the runway they're terrified it's going to rip San Francisco apart um, so they're like we have yeah. to pick something uh, we have to pick a, a different way to get it across the ocean. So we're going to put it on the USS Indianapolis, and we're going to lie to every single person involved in the chain of command about what it is. Um, so the Indianapolis takes on a top-secret cargo, um, and it's told that it needs to head for a naval base in the, nor in the northern Mariana Islands, which is a little island called Tinan. Um, now, this island is where they were going to complete the bomb. So two things were brought onto the ship. This big crate that contained the cannon, which was the actual vessel that the um, like bomb would be contained in. Because the way the bomb was supposed to work is it was going to be dropped out, and as it hit the ground, it would fire. 
and then the firing of the cannon, and I'm putting cannon in air quotes, like it's not an actual cannon, firing of the cannon would launch the bullet, which was the uranium canister. The uranium would hit with such force that fusion would happen, or fission would happen. I don't remember which one it is. It would be it would be fission. Fission. Fission would happen, and then that would be what would actually trigger the bomb exploding with all the, you know, the, those kilotons of force. So they've got the cannon itself, which is in this big crate, and that's lashed on one of the uh, lower storage decks. And then up in the captain's quarters, there are two Air Force officers, in uh, quotes, and they're actually uh, Los Alamos scientists that are pretending to be Air Force officers, and they are, con- they are carrying the bullet, which is all the uranium. Um, so the uranium that they were holding, it was about the size of, like, a lunchbox thermos. Mm-hmm. It's, pretty, it's pretty small. It's kept in a metal cage that is, like, handcuffed to them at all times, and they're like, um, yeah, this is uh, some Air Force stuff. Don't worry about it. And, and, like, they just took over one of, like, the captain's extra quarters, and they were like, this is where it's going to be stored. We're going to stay with it at all times. Um, but uh, the uranium that was in that canister was actually half of the world's uranium supply at that time. Um, that particular type of uranium. There's a lot of different types of uranium. Yeah. There were some plutonium bombs that were developed a little earlier that didn't work very well. So these designs were changed over into uh, uranium bombs. But this uranium is what's going to be Come little boy, which you'll know is you know the the first atomic bomb that was ever used in combat, first nuclear weapon. Um, so they successfully cross the ocean carrying this cargo. They arrive in Tinan. It's put together, and the uh, the airplane that drops it drops the little boy on the city of Hiroshima and kills an estimated 140,000 people. And then the next one was dropped on Nagasaki. Um, but that is kind of the Indianapolis's role in this war and it's crazy that just probably about two days after it delivers this top secret cargo it then is destroyed it's its last voyage ever um so it leaves its base in Tinan and starts heading towards a place called Leyte in the Philippines because mm-hmm. um, it's going to join up with uh, another it's going to join up and get ready for the invasion of Japan which is what's like most of the military believes is going to happen because the bomb obviously is a top secret thing, so they've been preparing the entire Pacific military, the Pacific theater, for an actual land invasion of Japan. Um, and so they start heading towards Leyte, and this is where some military bureaucracy happens. Now, you were in the military, right? Yes. Can you speak positively towards military bureaucracy? <laughs> No. No? Yeah. Oh. Would you say there's no. some oversight there? Uh, um, there's definitely some oversight. There's definitely some... Um, undersight? <laughs> some undersight. There's definitely a lot of, uh, like, just not not good communication going on there. A lot of people stepping on each other's toes, yeah. not wanting to listen to other people. Like, a lot, a lot of... Um, uh, just just a lot of, of measuring of certain body parts going on. I got I got you. A lot of flagpole measuring. A lot of flagpole measuring. I understand. I understand. Um, mm-hmm. Well, as we kind of get into the story, once I mean, spoilers, <laughs> the ship is going to sink, but once everybody who survives gets back to shore, this becomes one of the biggest, one of the biggest like that's not my job debacles, mm-hmm. because everyone wants to know why the ship wasn't discovered faster. And 
and it just becomes like military personnel after officer after military personnel after commanding officer goes, that's not my job. I wasn't the one who's supposed to be looking for that. You're looking for this guy. This guy goes, that's not my job. I wasn't the one who's supposed to be looking for that. And it's awful. And truly one of the worst victims we'll get to right at the end, but he becomes a victim of this bureaucracy. Um, and it's, it's like, it sucks. It really does. But basically what happens is a lot of dispatches are sent about the Indianapolis as it leaves um, Tenen. Because as it leaves, it's supposed to be heading towards Leyte to do a 10-day like refresher mission because a lot of its crew were new, having been taken on in San Francisco as it was being repaired. So there's a bunch of commanding officers that know that the Indianapolis is supposed to leave on this certain day, but a bunch of people in Leyte are not getting the information because of a bunch of like people who go, that's not my job, or we didn't get the right call sign, so we don't have to interpret those orders, mm -hmm. or like we don't have to descramp because everything's encrypted. I was like, oh, okay, that was given, that was a call sign for a different base, so we're not going to descramble this message because it takes effort to do that, and we don't want to. And if it wasn't sent to us, there's no reason for us to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, long story short, the Indianapolis leaves... A bunch of people know when she's supposed to leave, but the people that she's supposed to report to don't know when she's going to get there. So it just means that there, for some reason there's this weird gap. Um, like a conspiracy theorist would go, oh, it's a conspiracy. No, this is a story of incompetence. But there is a gap where people don't know when the Indianapolis is supposed to arrive. And everyone is assuming that a ship this large, because a Portland-class cruiser is a big ship. Oh, yeah. It's massive. Um, they're like... It'll be fine. It'll get there when it gets there. We're not worried about it being sunk. Um, well, they were wrong about that. <laughs> uh, but uh, one of the last things I'll say about the bureaucracy is ships that big were expected to travel without escorts and were expected that they would get there. Yep. They made predictions about whether they were going to get there and they would just move things around their little cork boards based on those predictions as opposed to like radio dispatches coming in saying they were here. So quite literally, like as men are floating in the ocean after the ship is sunk, there are generals going, fantastic. So now that the Indianapolis is here in Leyte, um, let's go ahead and get it sent over here and let's, and like are moving it around like it exists and like no one has any idea that it's not there. Yep. Um, so as it starts sailing towards Leyte, um, it's in the middle of its night journey. It's sailing overnight to arrive in the morning. Um, at about 14 minutes after midnight, exactly. What is that in military time? How do you say uh, that? Literally, it's like 014. 014? Yeah. Um, at 014, 015, they encounter a Japanese sub who is sitting on the uh, like standard canal that they would use, the standard route that they would use, been sitting and waiting for them. So this Japanese sum is called the I-85, and it is being um, helmed by a captain who has one job. He is part of a certain group of submarines that are just here to destroy American ships. Mm -hmm. They are, Japanese are quite desperate at this point, so anything they can see that transports land troops, because they're also preparing for the land invasion of Japan, they're like, if it transports troops, it dies. Yep. So um, this will come big into play later in the story um, as we get towards some of this military bureaucracy stuff. Um, the captain, Captain McVeigh, at this point is not zigzagging his ship. He has the orders to, when weather permits, zigzag at his own discretion. And zigzagging is supposed to deter submarine attacks. Um, there are many people who testify that zigzagging does not actually help. Um, the only way that zigzagging really helps is after a torpedo is fired. If you then zag your ship, then you get it out of the way. Yeah. But they're sailing, it's midnight, it's pitch black out there. 
they cannot see the sub, which obviously is you know slightly under the surface of the water yep. and is watching them with the periscope. But they are not zigzagging at this point. The torpedoes um, are fired in a barrage. Six torpedoes are fired at the ship. Yep. Two connect within about a minute of one another. Um, they blow. First one hits. Um, blows a hole in a few tanks, fuel tanks, and explodes them, just ripping half of the ship off. Yep. The other half um, hits the front of the vessel and blows a 30-foot-wide gap into it. The Indianapolis never loses its forward momentum, and as these big holes get blown into it, just like imagine a cup just pushing forward, just water straight into it. Um, the entire ship sinks in less than 12 minutes, which is incredibly fast. So the ship begins to sink. The captain loses all electrical power and starts calling for the abandoned ship after about four minutes of assessing damage. Um, starts calling for abandoned ship, but there's no electrical power. So he's literally just, you know, he's ordering officers to run below decks and just yell abandoned ship. Um, they're sending out distress signals. But as the ship begins to sink, people start leaping off the sides. The abandoned ship is called. Life jackets, life rafts are thrown over the sides so that they can be gathered. Um, but what's most important is the radio operators are staying to the last minute to yep. fire off distress, distress calls. So we're going to talk about those distress calls. So the three distress calls that were made before the ship rolled onto its belly, because it actually flipped over before it fully sank, um, were received but never acted upon. Three different calls were made. The first call was received um, but it was not acted upon because the commander at the time was drunk and didn't make a decision. He was just like, I'm drunk, not going to do anything about that. Then the second call was received, and the captain of the vessel who received that distress call had ordered not to be disturbed that evening. And so the radio operators did not bring it to the captain's attention. They just didn't tell him, because he, he was told not to be disturbed. And the third call was received by a commander on, near, on a nearby island, and he thought it was a Japanese trap. And so he didn't send any ships, he thought it was an ambush. So three distress calls are sent out. Um, then the ship rolls belly over, and everybody in the ship drops onto the ceilings. Yep. Um, it becomes almost impossible to get out. Um, at that point, if you were in the ship, you were going to die. 300 men went down with the ship out of the 1,200 there. 12, 300 of them drowned or simply died in the actual explosion. That means that there are now 900 men in the water floating around where the ship was. It is the middle of the night. It is pitch black, which means that these groups of men, as they've jumped off, are not seeing each other, really. Yep. Um, and one of the biggest problems that they've realized is once the fuel tanks were hit, not all of the fuel caught on fire. What it did instead was spread out across the water like a big oil slick. So people are jumping into the water here, and as they're landing, they're getting soaked and covered in oil. I mean, I don't, I don't remember how old you were, or I mean, exactly how old I was when the big BP oil spill happened. Remember, oh yeah, remember all those pictures of like those birds and pelicans yeah. and stuff just drenched in oil. Men are jumping into this like head first, face first, and they're coming up and they can't breathe because the oil is like sticking to their faces and so they're scrubbing it off trying to get it out it's getting into their mouths it's getting into their eyes and so as it gets into their bodies many men start to like vomit because they're trying to get out of their system their bodies oh. don't want it oh. which means that all these men most of which were asleep 
didn't have any water in their system because they were asleep, right? They haven't ingested any liquids in the last few hours. Then they jump in the water, they get oil in their mouths, they immediately throw up anything that was in their system because the oil is, I mean, horrible. Like, you do not want it in your body, but it's not even a voluntary thing. So all these men jump into the water. There's not nearly enough life jackets. There's not nearly enough rafts. There's maybe, like, a total of 12 to 14 rafts for about golly 900 men and it's completely pitch black as this happens men start to like grab onto each other in groups start to try and form up into ranks and try and like gain some semblance of order back then the trapped air pockets in the indianapolis because it flipped belly over start to explode out from underneath them in the hull and start blowing men apart not like killing them but the waves that are coming up out of it start spreading them apart and by the next morning, about six hours later when the sun rises, you're with your group and you're alone. Like, they're, the largest group ended up being about a, about 300 men that had a lot of officers in it, a lot of rafts. They actually had the ship's doctor in it as well, and we'll talk to him. The larger group you were in, the better for you. The larger your group was, the less likely you were to get attacked by sharks. <clears throat> there are a lot of men that just went full missing. Um, at that time, there's a lot of men that ended up, I mean, miles away from each other by the next morning. Because if you've ever been out, like, uh, whenever I, when I was first reading this, I kept picturing, like, you know, okay, you go down, the water's flat, you lay there, you know, you stay there. No, no, no. The waves, like, five, five ten foot waves yep. are coming by at all times. You can't see, you know, within 20 feet of you because the wave is too tall. Yep. And it's just, so all these men are out there treading water all night trying to stay together. Anybody with a life jacket... Um, it, life jackets become priority for people who are actually injured. So anybody who like had their arm broken or people who got burned, because a lot of people got like really injured in the explosions. So people who are too injured to swim are given priority on the life rafts. People who are too injured to tread water are given priority on life jackets, which means that there's a lot of men who are just, like the majority of men are just treading water, just attempting to yeah, swim. Which in military garb is really really tiring oh gosh because you you're wearing you're wearing full boots you're wearing full like <laughs> like you're wearing your pants granted if these guys just woke up from a torpedo attack there's probably a lot of them that aren't in full garb they're probably in their like pt gear like in their pt their... gear so they're probably treading water in like shorts and like much better and like t-shirts but there's still going to be like the night crew that's still in like mm. full garb whoever was active at the time that this attack happened because there's always people active you always have fire watch Mm -hmm. um oh yeah there were a lot of people on watch i mean the captains the the bridge was fully crewed at this time yeah so it's like you got all the people on the bridge you got all the people walking the hallways like keeping an eye out for like fires or other problems like that but then there's probably like at least half of those people were asleep at the time like Mm -hmm. you said so it's it's yeah no but treading water in full uniform i've had to do it exactly two times and it is hard. Oh, God, no. When I was a lifeguard working in college, there was this woman that was coming in. She was training to be, I believe it was a Marine. She was training Probably. for a Marine. She was training for, like, the Marine's entry test or something. She had to be able to swim, and she wasn't a very good swimmer. In fact, I don't believe she could swim at all. Um, but the test she had to do was to jump in from a height of, like, four feet, carrying all of her gear and a pseudo-rifle. Then she had to flip under, well, she had to swim, like, across and back. She was on, like, 100 yards with all that gear on. She would jump in. She had, like, a trainer with her that was mm-hmm. trying to help her. She would jump in, and then she would just immediately begin to drown. 
And so she would drop the rifle, and then I would dive in to get her, and my other guard would dive for the rifle. And we would go grab her, we'd pull her to the side, she would sit up and she would cough, and she'd go, all right, we're going to do it again. Yep. We were like, are you, you don't have to do this. Like, if you don't know how to swim, and she's like, well, I kind of know how to swim. And we watched her, she, all she could really do was float on her back. So she would jump in, kind of doggy paddle her way back up to the surface, and then try and flip on her back and see if she could float. I watched her drown probably eight or nine times that morning and we just switched off who would go get her and who would die for the rifle at the bottom of this 14 foot pool and it was so like uh, just a just a safety thing if you ever jump into water or fall into water first thing you should do is kick off your shoes yep. like because your feet are going to be way better at like like shark attacks notwithstanding you're not going to kick a shark in the face no. any harder because you're wearing boots and you're going to drown a lot faster if you're wearing yep. shoes um, but no I just I it was crazy what they had to do luckily for these men they were all in the navy and while there was not a requirement that you learn how to swim at the time which is stupid um you most people who joined the navy were able to swim yes um there was also a large contingent of marines on board however their quarters were the ones that were struck by the torpedoes so most of the marines didn't make it out yeah. um so the sun kind of rises and everyone starts to take stock of what's happening so there's these large groups kind of around and in the area. The largest group is a group of 300 men, and that contains the ship's doctor, which is Dr. Uh, Hayes. Um, now, Dr. Hayes uh, is one of the few men who took one of the best, like, documented kind of reports of what happened because he said, well, from the moment the sun rose, I was just dealing with injuries as best I could. And with 300 men, I just kept swimming around from person to person, and I kept myself busy, and I didn't worry about the sharks. Um, and his group is one of the few that were not attacked mostly by sharks. Um, he was like, oh, I would see the sharks, and occasionally they would, like, I would walk across the back of one of them, but they didn't really bother me that much, because I was moving from dead man to dead man, constantly checking on them. Yeah. Um, so, sharks have a very, very, and you were telling me about this as well, sharks have very intense receptors that can tell yes. them what's going on so, in the water. The sharks have seven senses. Technically, fish have six senses. All fish have six senses, but sharks have a very specific one. Um, all fish have a lateral line, which is mm -hmm. a series of pores along their body that are filled with essentially like sacs that are able to detect differences in water pressure. Mm -hmm. And that's why they are able to maneuver in schools and all of I've always wondered why they don't bonk well. into each other. It's because they can sense when one fish is moving so they can adjust their body at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, but sharks have a specific one called the Ampullae of Lorenzini, which was discovered in 1678, which blew my mind when I looked that up. Because um, I actually didn't know. I didn't know that that's when it was discovered. I thought it was like a recent thing. Nope, 1678. Um, and the Ampullae of Lorenzini is a series of pores along a shark's snout mm -hmm. that are filled with a very... Um, a very sensitive like jelly or like gel that can sense the electrical signals given off by like just electrical signals in general which is why one of the best shark deterrents is like punching in the face no you don't punch a shark in the face oh. you go for the gills or the eyes because their snout is actually really hard because they have to ram into things i can't believe um, that uncle john's bathroom reader lied to me about punching <laughs> sharks in the face no no also <laughs> since sharks have like a conical nose there's a strong chance that if you punch a shark in the nose that your fist just goes right into the mouth <laughs> Um, so a shark right in its mouth. Yeah, go for the gills or the eyes if you're going to go for a shark because those are the two things that if it, that gets injured, it might impair how a shark hunts, and that's mm -hmm. a big no-no for predators. Um, 
but the ampullae of Lorenzini is, it can detect electrical signals to the point that a great white shark can detect, if I remember correctly, it's like one millionth of a volt in the water. So, like, these sharks can legitimately feel your nerves firing. They can sense your heart beating if you are in the water, and that is so scary. Um, well, with that in mind, 900 men are in the water panicking. Yep. Um, also, explosions have rocked this area of the ocean. Fireballs have happened. The ship itself has sunk, all these air bubbles. So it's basically a, just a big dinner bell Absolutely. for every predator in the area. Also, one more thing about this, because you said that they vomited earlier. They did. Vomiting is kind of a sign of, like, uh, distress. like a distress or, like, sickness, and how sharks' smell works. Because we always hear how sharks have this, like, amazing sense of smell. Yes. What a lot of people don't realize is that sharks don't have a sense of smell like humans do, where we're yeah. like, we can, we can smell something. They don't something. have nostrils. <laughs> yeah. Well, they do. But here's the thing, how, how it works. Mm -hmm. Sharks have nostrils, but it's, it's built differently than ours. Where we can smell something behind us, sharks can't. They so, can't smell behind them? No, but this is what makes it so scary. Sharks swim side to side, right? So their noses have kind of developed to, like, adapt to that. Mm -hmm. So literally what happens as they're swimming from side to side, they're able to tell what nostril mm -hmm. is getting that scent from oh. the direction it's going. So they are literally, tr as they're swimming towards their prey, they're triangulating. They're triangulating their scent. Where they're going. So they're probably smelling this vomit and like any terminators. like anybody that's wounded with like cuts or anything like that. This is literally like you said a dinner bell. This is mm. this is literally the biggest dinner bell In ever ocean. received. Like this is huge. <sighs> that's crazy. Because sharks are terrifying. Sharks are terrifying. <laughs> and we're yeah we're gonna get into the shark stuff right now. So let's talk about some of the benefits that the survivors have. Mm -hmm. And then we'll get into the negatives. So the benefits the survivors have. They are in the South Philippine Sea right now, which means that the water is quite warm. It's tropical, so that means they're not going to be suffering from hypothermia, which is good. There are lots of them, which means they can gather together in groups. They can try and keep morale up. Um, another thing that's good is they have some food rations. They have some water. Um, they don't really have much water, but they have some like actual food rations. So they have some supplies. And a lot of the officers and the doctors made it off. So, like, the ship's doctor is taking care of this largest group. He made it with them. And then officers are, like, actively organizing men together. Those are their benefits. They are organized. There are a lot of them. They have some supplies. Here are the negatives. Every single man is covered in oil. Mm -hmm. All of them. So it's impossible to tell who is who. Many of the men who died on the ship start bubbling up during the night. Their bodies start floating. The sharks can smell this. They smell the dead bodies. Um, a pro of this is that when the sharks arrive, and they arrive almost immediately, is that they spend their time eating the dead. Yep. The bad news is, every time a body is consumed, it releases more blood, which in turn attracts more sharks. So, they, <laughs> they're out here in this water, and the sun rises, and no one really notices the sharks are here until the morning because the sharks are busy eating the dead. So none of the live sailors have seen them because they've been underneath it. They've been dragging bodies down. But they, the sun rises, and they start to really understand what their position is. So all the injured are laid on a life rafts. As the sun rises, those injured on the life rafts begin to absolutely cook because it is boiling lava hot. So you're either boiling hot on this life raft exposed to the sun injured where you can't even move enough to swim, or you're in the water and you've been treading water for probably six hours straight at this point and you're exhausted. 
the first thing you see when the water rises is there are just dozens and dozens of bodies floating in the water around you. And every once in a while, one of them will disappear underneath the water and a fin will come by. Um, the first shark sightings were the first day they started seeing the sharks. They were attacking them. Um, then they they said that once the once the uh, the bodies had started to get consumed, they started to see the sharks a lot better. They were coming for them. So the two types of sharks that were coming were oceanic white tips, which are about nine feet long. Normally, they can get much longer. Um, and then tiger sharks, which are 13 feet long. Um, and they are swimming around the men. They're circling. Mm -hmm. um, and so all these different groups have different groups of sharks that are circling them. Um, so the group of about 300 men, um, the doctor reports that Almost all the men that died died to salt poisoning, exposure, dehydration, and like murder. We'll talk about how they murdered each other in a little bit. But he said that n almost none of those were shark attacks because they were such a large group. There are other groups. There was a survivor. His name was uh, Edward Harrell, I believe. Um, and he wrote a great book about this called Out of the Depths. But he lost most of the men in his group to sharks. Mm -hmm. um, so it depends on what group you're in, but the sharks are circling around and they're starting to take people out. And so what the sharks will do is as they start eating these dead bodies, they start checking to see who's dead and who's not. So a lot of these men with life jackets have passed out in the night or died from their injuries and are now floating face down in the water. Um, and so the sharks will come by and they'll bump it to see if it moves. If it doesn't move, they'll bump it again. On the third bump, if it hasn't moved, they're going to take it down. Yep. They, they'll dogpile it and bring it down and start eating it. And so Edward Harrell has this quote. He says, um, you know, you'd, you'd look over at your buddy and you'd see he was laying face down in the water. And so you'd, you'd swim over and you'd like, you know, touch him on the shoulder to see if he was still alive. And you'd realize as you touch him on the shoulder that he would flip over and he didn't have a bottom half anymore. Um, and he just didn't have any bottom. He didn't have any legs. They had been ripped off. And he was just like, and that would just happen so many times. And it's just awful. Like, if you get a chance to listen to him, it's sad. But the thing was, as the doctors and, like, the officers move around, if that happened, the next course of action was to take the man's life jacket off, strip him of any useful parts, and then push his body out. Because every time somebody died, that was another corpse that could be used to fend the sharks off, mm -hmm. which had the unfortunate effect of every time you fed the sharks a body, like, more sharks would, more come, sharks in. would come in. And so it's the, the, like, the, the later in that first day and people start to get thirsty. Um, really thirsty. Now there is some water. Any groups that have water are rationing it out. Um, most groups don't have any water whatsoever. Only the largest group does. And they're having some problems with food. Um, we'll talk about kind of what their big problems are. That's the doctor's group. Um, but most people are getting very, very thirsty. The doctor is reminding everyone not to drink salt water. Um, I'm, it, it's a very common knowledge you should not drink salt water, but dehydration only gets worse if you drink salt water. You cannot consume salt water it will poison you, you will get salt poisoning. Yep. But, so the first day, um, the doctor's reminding people not to drink salt water, and pretty much everyone is listening. A few men are like looking hard at it, but everyone's pretty much listening to it. Um, a few men decide it's time to get into the rations and start eating. So rations are distributed. Most of what they have are crackers and spam. Spam was a huge staple at that time because it was canned, and also all the, uh, the people in the Annapolis are like, fantastic, spam floats because it's sealed in an airtight can, there's enough air in it that it doesn't sink, so it'll float to the surface. So they have plenty of spam, they open it, and they realize that sharks love the smell of spam. 
it's salty, it smells like food, and most most sharks are you know opportunistic eaters. They'll eat anything. Oh yeah. And so as they open it, even more sharks start to appear, and they start to circle the group and bump at them hard until the spam is thrown away. Other groups, other like the doctor's group, they start eating the spam, and they realize that it's not a blessing. It's a curse because the moment you eat the spam, spam has such a high salt content to keep it preserved. You just get thirstier. Yep. Um, and same so, with the crackers too. Same with crackers. Absolutely. Yep. There's a reason, and it's just the, it, like every turn, these guys are getting worse and worse, and it sucks. Um, uh, one of the doctors, so the doctor says that um, he began to swim from man to man checking they were alive and as people would die from exposure from their injuries things like that he would take their dog tags off and wrap them around his right arm to try and like you know report back who had passed away by the second or third day he had so many dog tags wrapped around his arm it was like causing him to sink and he had to let them go and let them drop because they were literally it was like making him unbuoyant he couldn't he couldn't continue to swim with them on it was how many people died so anybody who is alone becomes a target for the sharks. Mm-hmm. Um, when people, when the sharks get close to the bigger groups, that means that the um, the men all kind of band together. They're all like linked arms at this point, so that ones with like it, they would usually do like non life jacket, life jacket, non life jacket, life jacket to try and keep everybody stable. So as a you know as sharks start coming towards them, they start screaming and like kicking and trying to like slash out with their knives. Um, but that means that no one can sleep because the sharks are constantly attacking. So no one's got any sleep. Everyone's treading water. Um, <laughs> the, the people like literally would get bitten, and those with their life jackets would get pulled down. And as the like the corpses got more and more taken apart, some people just started to rip in half. Um, it's oh god, it's awful. Um, the second night, um, sailors started to commit suicide by taking their life jackets off and just quietly like swimming farther enough down that they couldn't like come back up again. Um, because, I mean, obviously, that's the hardest choice anybody has to make. But, golly, just being out there in the water. I mean, and no hope of rescue. Yeah. None. You either you either die to drowning or you die to a shark attack. And that's Ugh. not a good choice. <laughs> it's, it's not a good choice. No, it's a bad choice. Um, the, <clears throat> the second day, um, as the sun rises, a lot of the men realize that there are life jackets up for grabs now. And they start to fight over them. Um, 25 men in Haynes' group killed each other fighting for life jackets because every single man was equipped with a knife. Um, and so they, as the sun rises, 25 men kill each other for life jackets. Um, once that happens and everyone gets settled, the corpses are pushed out. Um, then, this is when dehydration really starts to set in. Many men can't resist the, like, the, the temptation, water. the salt yeah. water. And they start drinking it and they start to suffer from salt poisoning. Salt poisoning has the unfortunate effect of causing you to hallucinate. Um, everyone's co- still covered in oil. Everyone is like with unfamiliar men. Even on a ship of twelve hundred men, you're not going to know. Everybody. Not going to know everybody. No. It's unlikely that you would even be with somebody in your squad because three hundred of them have already gone. And then you're in these massive groups that have been split off. Like the smallest groups are like five, six. The biggest groups are three hundred. Well, three hundred minus twenty-five now. Um, but. As they, um, as they start to get sick from the salt poison, they start to hallucinate, more knives are drawn, more fighting happens. They start to believe that the people next to them are trying to drown them. 
you can't recognize anybody. It's easy to make the leap from like, I don't know you, I don't recognize you, to you're a Japanese soldier, you're coming to kill us. Because they know a Japanese sub is in the area and they start talking about how, oh no, the sub is right beneath us, they're sending up men to kill us as they like, you know, start freaking out. Um, as the death toll rises, um, Dr. Haynes is collecting these dog tags, he has to let them go, but after basically four days of attacking each other, shark attacks, um, the men said at one point you could look down into the water beneath you and just, there was just a floor, and it was sharks Yep. beneath you, just sharks. Um, uh, Edward Harrell, the guy who writes this story, um, he was with a group of men that attempted to swim away, swim towards the Philippines. They were like, uh, sunrises in the west, Philippines are in the west, we're going that way. And, we, and a bunch of his men didn't want to go because like, another raft came up to them. Um, and I say raft. A lot of these were like just crates with like nets wrapped around that were forming yeah. makeshift rafts. Um, and so he said he was with a group of about nine men or so, and he joined up. Uh, this other crew came by and was like, we're going. Do you want to come with us? And a buddy of his, another Marine named Spooner, said, I don't want to go with them. I'm going to commit suicide. And, and Edward's like, no, we're not doing that, buddy. You're my friend. I'm not letting you go. Turn around. The spinner goes, okay, I'll turn around. You know, he's too exhausted. He doesn't want to fight. And Edward just takes a rope and ties him to the raft so that Spooner cannot swim away. Um, and then they say, we're going to join up with this crew and we're going to swim forward. So they start swimming forward. And at this point, they're 500 miles away from the Philippines. Yeah, they're, they they're not making this. They don't know this. But Edward says that a few men didn't want to go and stayed behind and like just stayed where they were floating. He says that none of them survived. His group did that started swimming out. He said as they swam out, he saw a crate in the distance, probably about 400 maybe feet away. He was like, I'm going to go get that. And everybody else in his crew is like, if you swim out by yourself, you're going to get murdered. Like, they're going to eat you. And he's like, I got to know what it is. And they're like, it's just a piece of ship. Like, it's just going to be a broken piece of metal or something. You can't, it's not going to be worth it. He goes, I'm going to do it anyway. And so he swims out there. He doesn't get eaten by sharks. Um, very good for him. But as he swims out there, he finds that it's an, a sliding crate, and he opens up, and it's full of rotten potatoes, um, which has got to be the saddest thing to see. It's a bunch of rotten food. But he says as he grabbed the potatoes, he squeezed it, and as the like the rot kind of squeezed away, but underneath there was probably about, like, a, um, I don't know what to say, probably about, like, a maybe a pear-sized bit of potato left. And he said pretty much every single one of those potatoes was mostly rotten, but had a little bit of potato left. He said that's what even that's what saved all their lives. They had no food. He swam the crate back over. They kind of met him halfway, and they all just took their knives out and cut all the rot off, and then just ate raw potato. Um, and the like the starch didn't save them. Potatoes have pretty high water content. Yeah. Um, and so it gave them enough water to live. But so he was. They were the lucky ones. Um, the ones that get these uh, these potatoes, a lot of men die of dehydration and exposure. Um, so the shark attacks killed a number, about 150 men. Murder, infighting, salt poisoning, dehydration, and uh, all this killed the other 600. Um, only 300 men came out of the water. Um, four days later, um, as everyone is giving up, the people that are paddling have stopped paddling. Like, they're just, everyone's laying, they're floating if they can. At this point, there are enough life jackets to go yeah. around. Because that many men have died. Um, and corpses, enough corpses have washed up, and life jackets floated by. Um, so a 
bomber is doing a uh, like search and destroy mission, just heading overhead and sees them, sees the flashing lights in the water. Um, and he says that he, as he looked down, he saw flashes of light, and then he realized what was happening. He was seeing just hundreds of dead men, just hundreds of dead men laying in the water, and the bits of their uniforms that were metal were shining. And all he saw were bodies. And then he said, what I saw underneath the bodies was sharks, just as many sharks as there were men. One of the scariest things, if you ever, I don't know, have you ever been to, like, Florida? Have you ever been, like, out swimming in the beaches of Florida? I refuse to go to the ocean because I, I do suffer from thalassophobia. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad I'm here. Fun terrible. No, but so here's the thing. Here's the thing. So long as I'm not in the water, it's, it's not fine. that bad. It's fine. I can handle it. Mm-hmm. The second I go into water, even in video games where I can't see the bottom, oh, wait, my brain just fries. I have to, like, I have, like, m- miniature panic attacks. Even when I'm playing a video game, like, Subnautica? Like, like Subnautica or Archive mm. Evolved. I can handle it. I can push through it, but it's still just like... It's bad. Oh, something's going to come up and eat me. I don't want this. So I refused to go swimming in the ocean. I did a lot of swimming in the ocean. I was actually a part of a sea base expedition, which is something you can do in Boy Scouts. I lived on a ship for like a week and a half, maybe. And we did a lot of snorkeling, stuff like that. Um, but one of the things that really freaks you out, the little these helicopter tours in Florida, and I've never done one, um, but you these tourists will take videos as they fly over. And so you'll see all these beautiful white beaches and all these tourists on there at about 40 feet offshore, maybe 40 yards offshore, probably 20 feet away from the nearest like swimming guy. You'll just see shark, mm-hmm. shark, shark. Because they hang out there. Because they, they know there's lots of food there. And not humans. They don't want to necessarily want to eat humans. But there's plenty of trash. There's plenty of like refuse that they can eat. Um, and so the crazy, like, it's crazy how you can see just from above, top down, you can see so many sharks, and that's what he's seeing. Um, and so he calls in immediately, calls radio in, says, there are men out here in the water, we need to get people out to them. He calls the, uh, um, the flyer of a pilot of, like, a seaplane. It's one of these big seaplanes, got a tr- crew of probably 12 men. The seaplane comes over and starts to drop rafts and supplies for them. But as he sees, like, as he flies over, he sees the same thing. He circles around. He sees sharks attacking men. And so he's like, he has orders not to land. And so he talks to his crew and he goes, what should we, what should we do? And the crew's like, we'll, we'll back you. We're vo-, like, they take a vote and they say, We're, we should go down. We should go help them. Um, and so he attempts to land. And at this point, the swells are 12 feet high. He's attempting Ooh. to land a plane. He's attempting to land a seaplane on 12 foot high swells. And that's not an easy thing to do when the water is flat. Yeah, no. He's trying to land on swells, and uh, Edward Harrell was one of the men. He watched this plane land. He says as it came down, he hit a wave and, like, came off of it, like, you know, like a skateboard. Yeah, yeah, Like, came off of it and came back down. The right pontoon broke, and the right propeller broke. Um, And so the plane basically landed and never took off again. Um, But they used the remaining prop to basically just around the water. They picked up 57 men just and started they ran out of room inside and they started strapping people to the wings with parachute cord yeah just to try and keep them out of the water um so edward harrell at this point in his story this is kind of where his story sort of um like finished this is where he gets rescued he says that he had gotten separated from spooner at this point his friend who would want to commit suicide and he was fearing for the worst he was like well if i can't find spooner spooner's probably gone gone and so he gets pulled onto this plane by this like crew of 12 men or so and as he gets pulled on his plane, he's just laying on the floor, and he looks over, and laying next to him, looking up at the ceiling, is Spooner, <laughs> who is somehow alive 
um, which is really, really cool. Spooner lives, Edward Harrow lives, um, but this man lands against orders, starts rescuing people. Then uh, another ship is on the way. I believe it's the Carly Doyle shows up and about this time night falls. And so everyone is so worried because they, they've seen the planes flying overhead, but now the true anxiety sets in because what if a rescue mission happens and you're not rescued? Yep. Which is, I think, I mean, I'm getting chills just thinking about it now. Can you imagine, like, a ship sailing past you and don't see you? Yeah. <sighs> um, so, the Carly Doyle, against again, again against orders, lights up at searchlight because they know there's a sub in the area. They know they're doing search and destroy missions. And a lot of people, like, there's a lot of chatter. This could be a Japanese ambush. The Japanese could be letting these sailors hang out here to try and attract rescue ships. Yeah. This guy puts its searchlight into the air so that the survivors know where to swim towards. And then as more and more men comes, it starts to use their spotlight to, like, find them and pick them up. Um, altogether, 300 men are pulled out of the water. Um, but of the 1,200 men that went in, uh, everyone else died. Yeah. Everyone else died. Um, and it's it's the one of the it's the worst shark attack that's ever happened, it's ever also, recorded. It's also one of the biggest military blunders. Oh, yeah. For a while. Like, I think the only one that I can think of... Just off the top of my head, I'm sure there's worse ones. Mm -hmm. The only one I can really think of off the top of my head is Dunkirk, which is its own separate. That's like a whole topic for another. I'm pretty sure that's podcast. a. Um, pretty sure that's a movie. That is also a movie. Is that a movie? It is actually a movie, but it's it's a relatively true to life movie. I think there's there's obviously some dramatizations in the movie, but like, mm -hmm. of course. Yeah. Well, isn't isn't uh, isn't Harry Styles in that movie? Yeah, and he did fantastic. I didn't even know it was Harry Styles when I watched it. Oh, fantastic. He yeah. didn't sing? He wasn't? No. Like, like no. the bombs aren't he falling really and he's like, good. meant to be yours? He did really good. Oh, good for him. Good for him. It's always nice when you see somebody who's like really good at one thing and you're like, oh, well, I bet you're bad at other things. And he's like, no, I'm good at those things too. It's like Childish Gambino. You're like, yeah. oh, okay, so you could do anything you wanted if yeah. you really tried. Um, but uh, so the good news is the shark attacks are over. Ooh. The 300 men live. Mm, probably about 10 more die of injuries on the way back but they're being pulled up and as they're being pulled up they're still all covered in oil and as they're being pulled on flashlights are being shown in their faces and being interrogated about what's going on um and there's a quote one guy said one guy said he was pulled out and he was like a lieutenant or something like a low-ranking officer like with a little bit of authority but certainly not enough authority to yeah. talk to a commander or a captain in the way that he's about to yeah um and so this commander this captain goes what are you doing out here What's going on? Because, again, the Indianapolis is reported in Leyte because that's where it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So these men don't, like, there's no reasonable explanation in the military bureaucracy why they're out here. And so they're interrogating, like, are you Japanese? What are you doing out here? And this lieutenant goes, well, we were stalled out for a swim, and we got lost, so thanks for picking us up. And, <laughs> like, like, says this just straight up to this captain. This captain goes, go sit down. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, because <laughs> the lights down on their deck. Um, but so now all these men are rescued. So now we get into what I think is probably the worst part. The blame game now begins because all the men are rescued. A lot of men are dead and someone has to take the blame. The captain went down with the ship, but survived. He went down with the ship. He managed to survive. He got into the group with the doctor. Um, and so the doctor starts giving their reports the captain gives his reports about what happened. And at this time, the war is also winding down in the Pacific Theater, right? The bombs are dropped. Um, and as the bombs are dropped and victory is declared, the Navy quietly releases in the same day that the victory is declared in the newspapers. Oh, yeah, and the USS Indianapolis sank. 
and just kind of quietly releases that information to the public. Um, however, 900 men are still dead. That's 900 families who are very publicly asking where their sons are, what's going on, and so someone has to be blamed. And here's where we get into the blame game. So about three to four months later, after everyone is recovered, a military tribunal is held. Captain McVeigh is court-martialed because a lot of people... So all these intelligence people that knew that the subs were in the area didn't, pop, didn't properly report it. All of them, they just start... It's a, just a big finger-pointing game. Um, he was supposed to tell me to do that, and he didn't do it. It's his fault. It's not my job to do that. The person who's in charge of intelligence briefings is this person. And it all comes down to, eventually, remember I said Captain McVeigh wasn't zigzagging? Eventually, they just go, we're going to court-martial you because you weren't zigzagging. We're going to court-martial you for hazarding your ship because someone needs to be blamed. <clears throat> so, to like actually fully indict him, the captain of the I-85 Japanese sub, who actually sank him, is called to the stand and in Japanese testifies about what happened that night. Because the war is over. You can now have foreign nationals testify. And what happens is, in Japanese, this man says, um, no, I fired a barrage of torpedoes. That's what you do when ships zigzag. So that doesn't matter. I fired six torpedoes. Two hit, because I was expecting him to try and get out of my way. Um, also, just a side note, the Japanese also had these things called kaitan, which were um, literal kamikaze torpedoes that were piloted by men. Oh yeah, it was terrifying. That, yeah, I, I, I was reading about that and I was like, Christ. Japanese soldiers during World War II were a special kind of zealous. They were mm. horrifying. Ugh, but, um, this captain testifies in Japanese. The translator, however, goes, no, no, uh, if he had been zigzagging, I would have hit him. I wouldn't have hit him. And just fully lies. And the, uh, fully lies, and then in the court-martial, uh, Captain McVeigh is court-martialed. Now, every single sailor on the vessel loved Captain McVeigh. They thought he was great. Um, but because of the court-martial, all these men who loved Captain McVeigh and died, their families hate him. He is court-martialed, and every Christmas he receives letters that say, um, Merry Christmas, my son would have been 30 today, but you killed him. Have a happy holiday. And gets them until the age of 70, where he walks out onto his front porch with a toy sailor in one hand and his government-issued pistol in the other, and he commits suicide. Um, now, it was not his fault. No. It was not his fault. And in 2000, this, uh, like, eighth grader, I think it is, this maybe eighth grader or maybe, like, freshman in high school, starts doing a report on the USS Indianapolis, finds out that this whole thing is a sham, and officially, like, lobbies Congress until they can get it posthumously re reversed. So he is he was reinstated as a rear admiral um, oh, that posthumously cool. because it wasn't his fault. And the whole thing was that um, it, it, it wasn't his fault at all, and he was just made a scapegoat. Um, but that's, I mean, that truly like, the last victim of the USS Annapolis is the captain himself who makes it through all this and then proceeds to get hate mail his entire life about it. And again, it's all just because the Navy doesn't want to admit that a lot of people made mistakes. And because a lot of people made mistakes, the incompetence was high enough that he just, it, it wouldn't have mattered. Um, and the crazy thing was, like, this Japanese ca captain of the sub came and said, no, he was going to go down. I was a good captain. I did my job. And it wouldn't have mattered what he did. Like, I was waiting for him anyway. And you knew I was there. So, it's on you. Uh, and it's just... 
so <laughs> the smart move would have been to be like, oh, there was one captain. This one commander was drunk when he received the distress call. That would have been a smart scapegoat. Mm-hmm. Well, no, but. there's a lot of people who uh, there's a lot of people who get basically um, who get kind of passed over. It's much easier to have one scapegoat than it is to have because I mean, how do you print into newspaper? Um, 17 officers made various levels of minor mistakes and those various minor mistakes ended up killing 900 men when it's much easier to say instead this captain didn't do the thing he was supposed to do even though his orders were to zigzag weather permitting at his own discretion and it's 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 truly like it's it's awful and it makes me upset and mad and sad yeah and so many people died and those who lived, like Edward Harrell, he passed away in 2021, um, but until the end of his life, he would go and tell his story. And every time he talked about Captain Uvgay, he was like the good captain, the good captain. He was a great guy. Um, and it just, uh, it's, so now I finished talking about how sad and angry I am. We're going to go, we're going to, we're going to swap topics now <laughs> from the super sad and just horrific I, this show's Time called period. Horrible History with Asher Brooks. Yeah. Today has been the horrible part. Yeah, so now we're going to go to a slightly less horrible part and a slightly more interesting... Not interesting. Interesting is, the, is, the, is not the right word I mean, word here. I was interested. But, I was um, sad, but I was interested. Yeah, interesting is not the right word here. Um, what I'm going to be talking about now is going to be talking about hunting habits of predators because I feel mm -hmm. like that goes pretty well with this entire thing. Oh, absolutely. Um, where uh, specifically we'll start with the oceanic white tips and then we'll kind of go from there. Uh, oceanic white tips are primarily solitary hunters, mm -hmm. um, but there is a thing that exists in the wild called cooperative hunting, which is sometimes uh, where predators that normally hunt by themselves or alone will come together if there is a large enough food source. This is a lot of times seen with sharks who are normally very solitary hunters, but they will occasionally come together if there's, like, an injured whale or, like, in the case of this, mm -hmm. hundreds of men. And they'll kind of come together, they'll eat, because there's enough food that they don't have to compete. They don't have to fight one another, yeah. which is very cool. There's a few other instances of large-scale cooperative hunting that exists in the world. There's, like, a great migration in Africa where all the predators there come together, but we're talking about the ocean today. Um... Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember, I remember reading. Sorry to get off topic. Like when slave ships, slave ships would cross the transatlantic, sharks would just follow them. Yep. Because dead slaves would just be tossed off yeah, the side. Exactly. So it's exactly like that. They're Ugh. very, they're very opportunistic hunters. They yeah. know when food is coming. They know when to like. They're smart enough to recognize patterns, but they're not smart enough to necessarily like plan things. They're not yeah. that smart. I guess they're, they're all reactionary. They're all reactionary, but they also do have like some memory. Mm -hmm. Um, like. Slightly wholesome. We're going to go with a wholesome fact here about yeah. sharks. A wholesome hey, fact. Save me from get, the hole I've dug us into. Get, 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 uh, get a little happy here. Um, there are a couple sharks that actually enjoy affection from humans. And, uh, yeah, yeah, there are some places you can go down in, nice. in, the, in, the, in the southern bits of the of, of, uh, United States here. Like Key West and stuff? Like, like Key West and stuff where mm -hmm. there's, like, uh, lemon sharks and nurse, nurse sharks specifically are the ones that come to mind when I'm talking about this. But they... They actually, like, have favorite humans. And if another shark comes up to their favorite human, they get jealous. <laughs> and they go, no, that's my human. And they push the other shark away <laughs> so that they can get pets and scratches from that human. Oh, that's great. And they'll let the, like, the human, like, turn them over on their belly or on their back, which is 
literally makes a shark go catatonic for a little bit. Like, it literally can't move when it's like that. For It, like, stuns them. I, I don't remember exactly what it is. It, like, throws it. But it's like they effectively can't move very well when they're up, upside down. So um, cool. Yeah, and uh, but they'll they'll flip over voluntarily or allow the person to flip them over <laughs> so and then get, get belly, like, belly scratches and then the person will turn it back over and they'll swim away and be very happy. Okay. Um, so there's a little wholesome. That does make me feel little, better. Little wholesome. There's some good sharks in the world that Absolutely. are just very very not nice. oceanic white tips. Not oceanic white tips. They are not very sharks. very aggressive. Very aggressive. Tiger sharks are. I don't want to say tiger sharks are aggressive. They just really like eating. <laughs> um. Tiger sharks are just like 16-year-old boys. They're like, look, I don't care. I'm just hungry. Exactly. And they'll just be like, oh, there's food in front of me. I eat it. doesn't matter what it. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so this is something that happens. Mm-hmm. And um, this is unfortunately what happened here was there's just enough food going around that the sharks oh, don't yeah. have to compete. They don't have to fight each other. Mm-hmm. So they just come together. Uh, there's a really kind of cool example of this, though, that I find fascinating Yeah. Uh, where it's a bunch of different species altogether not just sharks but dolphins and whales and birds mm-hmm. all kind of come together for this particular thing where whales have a very wild hunting thing when they're going after fish mm-hmm. where fish are dumb yeah fish do not stupid think. fish didn't get their yeah. geds yeah they, they don't they don't really think they just kind of they are very reactionary yeah, they're, they're very all instinctual instinct. yeah. yeah um and so their brain if there is something in front of them mm-hmm. doesn't matter if they can actually go through it they'll think it's a wall. Um, and whales have figured this out. So okay. what whales do is they'll go underneath a school of fish, get in front of it, and then start releasing air in front of them so that the bubbles from oh, them, them so releasing the air... Oh, so fish are just like, oh, those bubbles, I can't go through bubbles. Yeah, because it, it's... It looks like a wall. Vision, so it looks like a wall. And so they'll literally make nets made of bubbles. Mm-hmm. They'll just keep swimming in circles around these things. And while these whales are doing this, other predators have figured out that if they dive through the bubbles... They can get the fish because the fish are stuck there. And they won't and move. And the whales will slowly start to raise, and the fish will try to avoid the whales, so they'll get closer and closer to the surface. So they have dolphins and sharks shooting through the bubbles, getting the fish. As the fish get closer to the surface, uh, seaborne birds will mm-hmm. start diving into the water and snagging fish. And then to like finish it all off in like a huge coup de gras, the whale will just come up and just... <laughs> just eat, get... Just eat all of the fish. Oh my gosh. Uh, and it's it's one of the coolest examples of cooperative hunting that I can think cool. of because it's just like it's one of the few times you'll see actually like different families <laughs> of creatures work together. That's like, awesome. Um God, but no, whales sharks sharks are also terrifying because sharks have the oh, yeah. I hate sharks. They they have like cold, cold dead shark eyes. <laughs> I saw spy kids one. They're scary. They're very scary. Um but they have the um they have like the really cool like patterns to them where it's like they have like the white belly and the black or like, yeah, the, yeah, like yeah. the grayish top and it's it's good camouflage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we as humans don't think it's good camouflage because <laughs> they're like, uh, you're a shark. I can see. But you. a lot of us will be like, oh, we're watch we're looking at them from above. It's true. It's way different in the water. It's true because if you're looking at a shark from below, they're mostly white on the bottom, and if yeah. you look up from underneath from underneath water, it, it's mostly like white and shimmery. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so it, it so it's it's completely different in the water because light works differently in the water. Mm-hmm. So their camouflage is so good in the water, especially if they're hunting. Oh yeah, um, because they won't approach you normally. Like it's 
You'll still see them, obviously. Like mm-hmm. fish, fish have don't have like the same quite eyesight as we do. Yeah, they don't have the same range of vision, but they've but, got like blind sight for a little bit more because of those little uh, the, yeah the, la- the lateral lines. But yeah, sharks, they don't have, they sharks don't see as near as yeah, far as we do. Yeah, sharks can move fast enough that they don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but like the uh, the real terrifying thing about about sharks is that a lot of them are ambush predators. A lot of them will see something and then just like come in as fast as they can to hit this thing while it's unaware. Oh yeah. Uh, great whites are particularly proficient at this because they can get a lot of acceleration and a lot of power because they're just so big and so muscular. Um, and they'll, they'll specifically come up from below something mm-hmm. and just try to like break its spine basically upon impact. Um, just doing WWE wrestling moves. Yeah. Just do the spine uh, break. I mean, I wish I w- like that's basically what they do, which is why off of the coast of South Africa, I think is like the only place they'll actually like breach the water. But they will literally launch themselves out of the water after seals, Oof. Um, because that's how that's how seals and like some other uh, seals and like penguins, I think, are like really big on this, where they'll launch out of the water mm-hmm. to try to like break line of sight with whatever's chasing them. Yeah, and some predators have adapted to this and can like <laughs> they're like, oh, you want to jump out of the water? Yeah, I'll come with you. So so sharks are like. Mm-hmm. Terrifying. Um, specifically, there's also another sign of cooperative hunting. I think with black tip reef sharks. Black tip reef sharks have a, a thing where they they do live in like family groups, and they're actually really cool because they can actually sleep while staying still. Oh, that's so, very cool. So they'll find like little coral shelves and they'll fall asleep on the coral shelves. Just a little shark taking they're a nap. little sharks, and these ones I think only get to about six feet long. So they're they're kind of on the smaller side of sharks. Yeah. Well, I thought I mean um, this is one of those early facts you learn when you're like seven. I thought sharks could not stop moving or they would die. It depends on what species of shark it is. Some sharks okay. have uh, I don't remember exactly what it's called, but it's like a special like gill type, type of gill that will like basically keep flexing and mm-hmm. allow them to basically breathe like we do. Some sharks do have to keep moving, and those ones are especially adapted that their body literally just keeps going mm-hmm. um but uh so black tip reef sharks are small enough and they live on reefs so they've mm-hmm. specially designed themselves to hunt in reefs and so some of them will literally stick their heads into holes in the coral reef mm-hmm. and the others will herd fish into the, the holes hole. and then like keep them stuck in there so the fish have to swim into one of their mouths <laughs> um and it's it's one of those like wild little things where it's like these guys are pack hunters in the water and mm-hmm. i don't think they're necessarily like live in packs mm-hmm. not like Hammerheads live in packs. Hammerheads live in schools, uh, but they're also rather chill for sharks. I don't. Yeah, hammerhead sharks just look kind of scary, but yeah. they're they're not the type that yeah. would usually attack you. They, uh, their head being so long mm-hmm. and wide, they have the best electro. Like they, their their ambulatory Lorenzi are so like finely uh, tuned, so finely tuned that they can actually sense like the magnetic forces of the planet, and that's how they migrate large distances. Is they literally follow the magnetic currents of the planet. Sharks come with built-in GPS. Literally, <laughs> hammerheads do have built-in GPS. Is the best way to Bunch describe of sharks it. Sharks going, um, Alexa, can you take me to the nearest Starbucks? <laughs> Just their nose pings. All right, your nearest fish bucks is this way. It's it's really cool. Um, how everything in the ocean kind of works together really well. Like it's oh, it's particularly evident in there because. Um, this there's examples of this happening all over the place, but there mm-hmm. are some fish that specifically get their food from cleaning other fish, and that way they are they are literally a you don't eat this type of fish. So there are fish that sharks will just not eat oh, because yeah. it's more beneficial for them to keep that fish alive. For sure. What what is the type of shark that what is me What's the type of fish? It's like remoras or maybe yes. something like that swim underneath sharks all the time, and you'll like you'll think it's like attached to it, but it's just swimming right underneath. It, it. is attached to it. 
Oh. Yeah, some some <laughs> species of fish have like suction cups, and it's actually an issue for some divers and some swimmers because these fish will try to attach to humans, and they will suction cup themselves to your legs. <laughs> no, um, I don't like anything with suction cups. No, uh, but they specifically do it because sharks are not the cleanest of eaters, and so they'll like get scraps of food that fall past the sharks. But there are like smaller fish mm -hmm. that will come in and like clean out. The, the teeth, the of, teeth the sharks. of and like so the sharks will like swim Toothbrush with their mouths fish. open yeah um <laughs> like yeah it's really cool it is uh, really cool and like so the sharks will like do their best to not eat these fish um <laughs> fish are friends yeah food, it's, except for the ones that are food i think that's like actually kind of where the, the whole point of that came from yeah well no uh that's i think that's kind of where the idea of like the car wash and shark tails comes from <laughs> oh gosh is it's kind of based it's, it's loosely based off of that we're going back to that will smith vehicle yes from golly um <laughs> who'd have thought we'd get to shark tail yeah but shark tails <laughs> i'm not gonna talk about shark tails um we can talk about shark tails. We That'd know. be fun. But uh, no, no, that's cool. Um, so you know Jaws, right? Yes. Obviously the big movie. Mm -hmm. So I was gonna, I was gonna say one of the things I forgot. The um, there's this monologue that Quint does, or Quinn does. I can't remember yes, exactly what his Quinn. name. Yeah. Quinn. There's a monologue that Quinn does. It is based off the USS Indianapolis. Yep. He is he as a character is supposed to have survived that attack. Um, which is which is why he hates sharks. Which is why he shakes passion. so much. Yeah. Now, and if you read, um, and if you ever watched Sharknado. Um, the young lady at the beginning who has that shark bite and is like, I really hate sharks, has a monologue that's exactly the same as that. Yep. But it's just her grandpa. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah. Jaws and Sharknado take place in the same universe. Uh, confirmed. Confirmed. <laughs> confirmed. <laughs> you haven't seen Sharknado, ladies and gentlemen. Try it out. Try it out with your it's friends. Fun. Don't watch it by yourself. You'll be sad. Uh, but despite how efficient <laughs> sharks are in the water, because they are crazy efficient um and crazy crazy good predators and just yeah. organisms like they're one of their organs has basically been repurposed to like shut off blood flow to cancerous cells that's awesome so they they can get cancer there's like a, i think it was like a rumor going on around for a while that sharks can't get cancer they can get cancer they just they, just they literally just kill it before it kill kills it. off um it's terrifying sharks Golly. are horrifying creatures but even as horrifying as sharks are there are predators in the water that eat sharks eat sharks and not in like a particularly gentle way like orcas mm -hmm. orcas and dolphins dolphins have like a special hatred for sharks and like i can't remember where it's that stems from but there are some oh the great shark dolphin wars yeah there there are dude there are some rivalries that exist in mm -hmm. the, in the ocean that are just not even close to anything that exists on the land like there are some animals that will legitimately go after other animals on sight with fight no on, question. Dolphins are fight on sight with sharks. They are. They really are. Like there's there's like a whole cool. thing where it's like sharks will not mess with a pod of dolphins because the dolphins will just gang up on the shark and just <laughs> jump it, uh, <laughs> just give it a beat down. Because I mean, um, dolphins don't bite things, so they would just be like whacking you with their tails or something. They right? they they go full speed into the shark's sides, or they'll whack them with the tails, or like. Yeah, it's not pretty for the sharks. They'll go specifically for the gills and the eyes, like I was saying before, because Gosh. they recognize those as weak spots, because dolphins are smart enough to recognize that, hey, that's squishy, let's bite it. Dolphins are the Batman um, of the ocean. Yeah, um, but with less morals. With less uh, morals. But orcas, orcas are particularly terrifying, because orcas are very large and very smart. They are, I think, like considered like the second or third most intelligent animal on the planet, mm -hmm. um, after humans. So it's like, they are that close to us in intelligence where they will develop strategies to counteract things that humans do. 
Yeah, there was a whole thing where uh, humans used to like herd pods of orcas into places so they could steal the young and bring them to like SeaWorld and other like SeaWorld water places. Screw SeaWorld. Screw SeaWorld. Screw SeaWorld. Yeah, absolutely. We um, stand screw 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 SeaWorld. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So we were stealing their babies. Yeah, so we were stealing their babies and the orcas would recognize that we were stealing their babies and they would recognize the sound of helicopters and boats coming in and they would be like this is a sign that they're going to try to take our young. They're going to this is the sign that they're going to try to break up the pod. So we're going to do everything in our power to make it so that that doesn't happen. And so they developed strategies to counteract this. Where specifically the the women and the children would swim super far down below mm-hmm. the water, and the males would swim closer to the surface, so we could see them, and they would swim in one direction, while the women and children swam in the other direction. They didn't realize we could see that happening from the helicopters, so yeah. it didn't really work. Oh. Um, unfortunately, I was really I was, was really on Team Orca, <laughs> but it was it's still like one of those things where it's like they planned, they had. They recognize it, what was happening and, and they, had a strategy in place. Which means that they can communicate, they can plan, they have languages, which is just, like, crazy. Like, I think that... I'm not going to say anything about this, because I'm not 100% certain if it's 100% factual or not. There was a rumor I heard, and it yes. is just a rumor. There we go. There's a rumor It I is heard. a rumor I heard that there were different dialects of orca sounds that I've were heard, heard. I've heard that as well, that there's regional accents. Yeah. For different orca pods based off of where they are. For sure, Which yeah. is crazy. Which means they're communicating enough that dialects can form. Yes, which is just crazy. It's just a southern orca. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, y'all, but, you want to go eat some sharks? But orcas and dolphins have some of the craziest hunting strategies I've ever heard of, where they themselves do not have a whole lot of, like... Orcas obviously have a lot of killing power, because they're just very big, and they yeah, have yeah, sharp teeth, sure. and they are very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, dolphins, however, don't really. They yeah. have to get very creative on how they tackle hunting <laughs> they're they're all bludgeoning they're damage. they're very fast and they're yeah they're all bludgeoning damage um they do have teeth but like the teeth are designed to just kind of hold things they're not really like that yeah like it's obviously going to bite if you get it would hurt it's, it's gonna it's, hurt if it's, you it's get not a by, killing blow yeah kind of thing. yeah um but uh orcas are so like they're so intelligent that they have like they have developed these hunting strategies where like one of them is like they hunt penguins and seals who primarily live on like ice and like ice caps and they'll find cracks in the ice, and they'll bob mm-hmm. up so they can see above the ice, the ice line, see where the prey is, and then just kind of keep doing that until they get close. And then they'll swim in a line, and then right before they hit that ice cap, they'll dash down and swing their tails up at full speed, and it and makes a wave. No, it makes a wave that knocks whatever's on the ice off. Oh, into the water. Into the water, and then the other ones that aren't part of that line will come up and snap, snag it. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, it's they're so clever girl. They're so clever, but they're also just pure evil. Orcas and dolphins are well, just pure evil oh, when it comes to anything sure. that isn't human, which is the silliest thing. Do in the orcas world. not do killer whales not eat humans? No, orcas don't. Like do that? they'll they'll attack humans if like given like yeah, yeah, if you know, given too much provocation. Stealing. Yeah, yeah, uh, but like no, they they don't see they see us as like a another species they can communicate with like they don't necessarily like see us as like a rival predator or like a problem yeah they don't see us as right we don't we don't steal food from them yeah competing for food yeah so they they, they're generally pretty chill with us um same thing with dolphins which uh, that's going to be i'll get into that in a second here but like um i know a thing about dolphins but i just can't i can't say it it's too sad yeah it's too sad uh orcas though when they catch food and sometimes they won't even like eat the food that they catch they they just kill for sport they sometimes do kill for sport oh um no but they also do it as like a training exercise, which is something that sometimes happens in okay. pack animals. They're tra- training their young, they're training mm-hmm. the newbies. Uh, but one of the things they'll do to tenderize their meat, because they do tenderize their meat, which is horrifying. 
Um, they will grab a seal by the tail and then just fling it as hard as they can out of the water so that when the seal hits the water, it, like, squishes and, like, starts to, like, liquefy. Well, you were um, supposed to bring the mood back up. <laughs> and now we're pancaking seals. Uh, they will also do this. Orcas will also do this to great white sharks. That makes me feel good. Um, I like that. Because yeah. because Jaws has made me great white shark racist. <laughs> and orcas are they they are picky eaters when it comes to sharks. They won't even eat the whole shark. They'll eat the liver and like some organs out of the shark and then they'll just leave the rest for everything else. Um Damn. Orcas are really really metal. wild. They're orcas very metal. are super metal. Um but dolphins have some really interesting team based mm-hmm. things. Where they do the um the bubble net thing, but with mud. In, I think, the Philippines. I think it's the Philippines that they do Probably. this. Probably. They'll swim in, like, the shallow areas. There's, like, they'll some shallow area mud pots, and, dirt and, and they'll drag their tail along the bottom. So you can actually, if you're going over it via air, you will you can see the scars in the beaches and, like, oh, the, the waters of them doing this. But since the fish are dumb, they think it's a wall. And so the dolphins will do this around a pot, a school of fish, and the, dol- and the fish will jump over it to try to get out. And the dolphins will just be sitting there with their <laughs> mouths open, catching the fish as they come over. Um... But there's also a uh, a pod of dolphins mm-hmm. in, I believe, South America, off off the coast, where they live in a symbiotic relationship, which means that they oh, live yeah. jointly with a village of humans. Okay. Um. So the, this village of humans offers yep. them food, so they don't have to hunt as hard, and the dolphins help the humans, so that the humans don't have to work as hard, and so they they work together to make their lives easier. Better. So the dolphins will herd schools of fish into the humans' nets, and then the humans will catch the fish and then throw a portion of it to the dolphins. And this is something that has been going on for generations, which means this is a learned habit. This is a this is something that is passed down from young or from mm-hmm. old to young, which is one of the few times we see that. That's very cool. Yeah, it's it's so it's cool. the ocean is terrifying. Yeah, the ocean is terrifying not because of how big things get in it. Well, because of how smart things are in the ocean. A lot of animals in the ocean are way too intelligent for my liking. Like, microevolution is fascinating to see. Yes. Like, because macroevolution is the things that, obviously, that we talk about. You know, dinosaurs become chickens and all those things over time. But, like, microevolution, just the way things slowly change and get just incrementally better. Just the fact that, like, dolphins are intelligent. The fact that, like, uh, I'm sure you've heard there's like, this really, like, little heartwarming story about how they have this octopus in this aquarium somewhere. And I, I don't know if it's super verified, but they, like, they just noticed that, a, like, a fish were missing from yeah. this little aquarium every once in a while. And the octopus is not in this aquarium. They finally, they put cameras in, and it's just the octopus. He's climbing out of his crate each night, of his aquarium each night, going over to the other aquarium taking a fish to snack on, and then just climbing back into his little aquarium. My favorite thing about that is that he learned how to pick his own lock, mm-hmm. um, and then learned the guard's route, <laughs> and memorized it, so he knew how long he had to go to get the fish. Octopus Tom Cruise. And he had to get back. Literally, Mission Impossible octopus. <laughs> dun, dun, uh, there's dun, almost dun, no tentacle, way that... Tentacle, yeah, tentacle. that octopus is dead, by the way. Oh. Octopus don't live for very long. Okay, um, well... So that octopus is dead. Well, uh, well, that octopus it died of old age. <laughs> definitely died of old age. It definitely did not starve or anything else happened that to it. That octopus did all of its own stunts. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Will, for coming. Thank you for bringing the mood back up <laughs> and then ringing it right back down again. 
I'd like to really thank you. I'm sure the listeners are really enjoying this roller coaster we've been on. Um, but uh, I'd just like to say thank you so much for listening, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Thank you once again to my guest, Will, for coming and talking about why the ocean is absolutely terrifying. Oh, absolutely. We should never go into it. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, there's a bunch of episodes in the pipeline coming out soon. You can go look, listen to some of our other back episodes. You can also follow me, Asher Brooks, on Facebook. You'll see whenever a new thing is posted. Um, and you can follow us or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Pod, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot of them now. There's too many to list off. <laughs> um, so I hope you had a great day. I hope you've enjoyed listening to us. And I hope you get wherever you're driving safely. Enjoy your day. And remember, stay out of the ocean. Thank you.